Hi, I'm Kim Carson. And I'm Peter Klein. And this is We Had No Idea. Episode 43. Wow. Right? We come to you from Mokinsis, and we acknowledge that we get the privilege of living and producing this show on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Tsutsina Nations, the Iahe Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. You can find out what native lands you're on by looking at native-land.ca. Sounds so much better when you do it. Uh, the source <laughs> for the show today, source says, uh, bbc.com, history.com, britannica.com, and spglobal.com, or spglobal.com. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spell or spglobal. Spglobal. <laughs> We're going spglobal, baby. <laughs> uh, so thank God for those internets. <laughs> Uh, thank you, thank you for uh, downloading, tuning in, coming back week after week. We appreciate it for rating, reviewing, subscribing, all that good stuff. It means the world to us. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Peter, for doing such a good episode last week, Solo Sans Kim. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, I I did have a co-host for a little bit, as you heard, with uh, the, the Google the Home Google. chiming in a little bit. Um, and you, you, there, there's definitely a change before and after. But uh, yeah, no, I was happy to do it and uh, happy to have you back. Yeah, I'm happy to be back. And honestly, if that happened to me, you know what would have gone down. Yeah. Doors locked. I'm in the closet. <laughs> Hiding. Well, doors were already locked. I had that one covered. No podcast coming out that day. Right. I got scared. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, thank you for doing that. And I really hope that all of you wonderful listeners out there uh, really liked hearing about the Black History Month kind of highlight episodes uh, from us. Mm-hmm. I know I certainly learned a lot. I agree. I actually met a man the other day. From Bassano, and I thought about Charles oh, Daniels. Oh, that newspaper. Yeah, not the newspaper, but right, but Charles about Charles Daniels, Daniels and yes. his. Oh, I just kicked something. Oh wow. Um, and his defeating of the Grand Theater. Yes, Grand Theater. The Grand Theater. No. Uh, so yeah, I learned a lot in those, and I'm really happy we did them. And um, with having missed last week's episode, I wasn't able to give. I'm not going to call this a shout out. Um, but in Calgary during Black History Month, not that, you know, the the month was dependent on this happening um, or it mattering. Mattering? Yeah, that works. Hmm. Keep going to rolling. Okay. But um, there was a police shooting of Ladger Tool in Calgary, and um, he was a black man in a mental health crisis, and... Uh, it was extremely wrong that it happened. It didn't need to happen. Um, you know, there's lots of interventions and things that can go on before a man is shot multiple times. Um, and they didn't happen. And it's incredibly frustrating to see. It's incredibly sad. Uh, and we send our support to the Sudanese community in Calgary. Um, there was some rallies for him. Again, calling for defunding of the police and reallocating of resources to more helpful ways of helping people uh, that are in mental health crises uh, or just who need help. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, incredibly uh, sad to hear. And, you know, we're on this topic of uh, black people having um, these huge disparities within 
the community that we even live in. Mm-hmm. And it is just so fucking sad to see it still happening. Um, and, you know, we told our stories and it feels like we had come such a far away, but it's like something like that happens and it kind of, it kind of makes you feel like we're right back in fucking John A. McDonald time. <laughs> um, so very frustrating. And um, if you want to know more about that, there's tons of stories. If you just uh, look up Ladger Tool, um, all the stories will come up and yeah, we really feel for the black community and the Sudanese mm-hmm. community uh, at this time. And I just wanted to say that before we move on um, to another community that is hurting at this yeah. current moment. Yeah, from crappy to crappy um, is where we're going today. I mean, that's the breaks when you have a history podcast, I think. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we, at some point here, I think, need to mix in a happier one again. <laughs> do you want to do a Y2K episode again where we laugh about... <laughs> fucking end of dazers how how silly all of that was (laughs) or how right they were the world was ending uh but the world has not ended for the ukraine or for ukraine sorry um i i the ukraine is not what we're supposed to say and it's a habit that i need to break so i will try to do that on this show uh and definitely didn't need to go into that explanation so anyway (laughs) um if we are good. I will yeah, start take on it away. Uh, the history of Ukraine. And this is always a great way to start a history podcast. The origins of Ukraine are a debate among historians. <laughs> uh, many attribute its foundings to the Viking leader Oleg, ruler of Novgorod, who, all of that sounded made up, who went to seize Kiev, which, owing to its strategic location on the Dnipir River, or something like that, became the capital of Kivan Rus. I would say Dnieper. Okay. Um, also, you just said that all of those things sound made up. Let yeah. me tell you something. They are. Oh, yeah? At some point. <laughs> Oleg, ruler of Novgorod. It's made up. Yeah. It's totally made up. Totally. Um, <laughs> it's funny, like... By a historian, perhaps, yes. but it is made up. I um I, I saw, like, the, the origins of this are a debate amongst historians, but that was literally the only one that I saw. Like, could we provide what the other side of the debate was, aside from, ah, it wasn't that. Right, right, there's a debate about it, but, like, here's what we've settled on. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the result of the debate was... Vikings. Uh, Kievan Rus reached its peak under Yaroslav the Wise, with Kiev becoming Eastern Europe's political and cultural center. Following Yaroslav's death, Kiev entered a long period of decline, with a brief rebound under Vladimir II Monomakh. Vladimir, spelt like that, is probably one of my... It, that's. It's very pleasing to my eyes. Yes. V-O-L-O-D-Y... M-Y-R. Yeah. Vladimir. Vladimir. It looks real nice. Yeah. I wish he was more of a story than this one line. I think there's another Vladimir. Oh, good. Yeah. Stay (laughs) tuned. Stay tuned. Um, By the way, we're talking about the history of Ukraine today. We haven't officially said that. But I mean, again, the title on the podcast. Yeah. History of Ukraine. Because I think both of us kind of felt with everything that is happening uh, between, feels weird to say, between Ukraine and Russia. It feels more like. Everything that is happening to to Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. uh, I was like, you know, there was the 2014 conflict, quote unquote conflict. Yep. Um, but beyond that, I was like, why Russia? Get get to stepping. Stop your meddling. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really know why 
like w- what their history was. Like if Russia just one day was like, no, nope, we're going to go in. Flip, yeah. Flip to switch. You're close. We're going to come in. And it turns out um, this is an area that has been fought over for a very, very long time. Hence, we started with Vikings. Yeah. Hence, we started with Oleg. Yes. We've gone from Oleg to Volodymyr. 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 Shifts in trade routes undermine Kiev's economic importance, while warfare with the Polovtsians was very costly. There was a lot of infighting, and that left them vulnerable to the Mongol-Tatar invasions that began in the 1220s. That's a time. That That, is not a year. That is a time. Yes. 1220. (laughs) It is 1220 o'clock. They invaded just after lunch. (laughs) They established the empire of the Golden Horde. By the middle of the 14th century, or the 1300s, as most people would call it, that's what is hotly contested by historians <laughs> is that they're like we should call the 1300s 14th century to just really fuck people up right every time it gets me i'm like 1400s 14th century got it and it's like no that's wrong yeah um ukrainian territories were under the rule of three external powers the golden horde the grand is it duchy sure duchy Du- I promise. <laughs> nope. Um, I promised I looked for it and uh, I didn't see anything. So. I feel like because it, it looks like the beginning of Duchess. Ah. So the, the Grand, grand Duchy. D- of duchy. Teach me how to Duchy. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania and the Kingdom of Poland. Do you think a Teach Me How to Duggy reference misses in 2022? I don't. Okay. It it landed for me. Oh, good. Yeah. Crimea was in the control of the Tartar Golden Horde. This was the westernmost successor of Genghis Khan's Mongol Empire. By 1441, Crimean Khanate, which is what they called places that... Khanate? No. Um, No, it's Khanate. Okay. Um, It's what they called, like, again, successors of Genghis Khan. Mm -hmm. Um, They break free from the Golden Horde and conquer most of modern southern Ukraine. Over the next one, or over 100 years later, in 1569, Poland and Lithuania make it Facebook official, and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth is formed. At this point, Ukraine is cut off from Lithuania and given to Poland. In the period of Polish rule, the conditions for peasants take a turn for the worse. People who were once free basically were enslaved, or serfs, as they were called then. Serfdom. And the conditions for the enslaved became worse. So, bad news, Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be enslaved. Worse news, the conditions for enslaved people have now got worse now that you're there. Ah, wow, what a great deal. Right. Out of the fire into the more fire. (laughs) <laughs> Peasant unrest uh, increased toward the end of the 16th century or 1500s, Thank you. especially in eastern Ukraine. While this is going on, there is a new society forming called the Cossacks. Cossacks? Cossacks. Yeah. Cossacks. Cossacks. That one looks nice, too. Mm-hmm. Double S, Cossacks. Yeah. Uh, from the Turkic Kazakh, meaning adventurer or free man... And it was beginning to evolve in southern Ukraine. The term was applied initially to venturesome men who entered the area for hunting, fishing, and the gathering of honey. I thought that was hilarious, and I just left that in there. Bees. (laughs) Uh, Which I don't think there's a single bee in any of these names. No. As in the letter. Right. No bees to be found. No. Where is the honey coming from? (laughs) 
Their numbers were continually growing thanks to peasants fleeing serfdom. Thank you, peasants fleeing serfdom. And adventurers from other areas, banding together for mutual protection by the mid-16th century or 1500s. Right. The Cossacks had developed a military organization based on democracy with a general assembly and the supreme authority as the supreme authority, sorry, and elected officers, including their commander in chief or hetman. The Cossacks, is that what we're wrong with? Cossacks, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, defended what would become Ukraine from Tatar incursions, conducted their own campaigns into Crimean territory, and even raided Turkish coastal cities in Anatolia. The Polish government found the Cossacks a useful fighting force in wars with the t- uh, Tatars, Turks, and Muscovites, but in peacetime viewed them as a dangerously volatile group. So basically, they were the Polish's suicide squad. Ah. Attempts to control them in institutionally, and to limit their numbers through an official register created serious discontent among the Cossacks, who increasingly perceived themselves as forming a distinct state with inherent rights and liberties. It's so weird that uh, groups of people who can function on their own and create their own society would feel increasingly distraught and... Like they were a distinct state with inherent rights and liberties. (laughs) It's such a wild concept. Right? Sporadically, over a half century, starting in 1591, the Cossacks rose up in revolts that were put down with great difficulty. And in the first half of the 17th century, the Cossacks also became involved in the raging religious conflict that was going on. In 1620, the group of... I'm so happy you got this. Zaporozian Cossacks. Nice. Nailed it. Uh, it's because I Googled it. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> what we originally had in here was uh, Zaporozian hosts. And I was like, what is a Zaporozian? <laughs> it's just a kind of a, almost like a dialect of Cossack. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, joined the Kievian, Kievian? Kievan. Yeah. Kievan Orthodox. There you go. And with this new Orthodox... Damn it, how did I get Zaporozian? <laughs> that happens to me all the time. I'll get something that is kind of difficult, and then um, I'll stumble on the afterwards. Like, we were doing this story about not Boston, Massachusetts, and here I am... Right. ...stumbling over the names. <laughs> I feel like Zaporozian is not going to come up as much as Massachusetts does in your everyday life. I will take that bet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Cossacks became identified with the staunch support of orthodoxy and uncompromising opposition to the Uniate Church. Fuck, I don't don't want to keep questioning the way I'm saying these words, but Uniate? Yeah, I think you're fine. Just confidently say them that there is, I assure you, Mm. no one listening to this is going to call you on it. Under the protection afforded by the Cossacks, the leadership of a new metropolitan of Kiev, Peter Mogila, orthodoxy thrived, not just survived, in Ukraine. It became the driving force behind a cultural revival that included the establishment of Kievan Molia Academy, the first Ukrainian institution of higher learning. Hey, now. Hey, now. Hey now. 
Tension stemming from social discontent, religious strife, and Cossack resentment of Polish authority finally came to a head in 1648. Beginning with a seemingly typical Cossack revolt, Ukraine was quickly engulfed in an unprecedented war and revolution. In 1648, a Polish army was sent to Ukraine to shut down the rebellion and was shattered in two battles in May. This victory gave signal to a massive popular uprising. Violence spread throughout Ukraine as Cossacks and peasants vented their fury on those they associated with Polish tyranny um, and social oppression. In the fall of 1648, another crushing defeat on a newly raised Polish army um, marched west through Galicia and finally Galicia. and finally over to uh, overtook Zamosk in Poland proper. The Cossack leaders at the time did not press this advantage and with the election of a new Polish king in November, they returned to central Ukraine. In January of 1649, damn. <laughs> Kmelnitsky the Cossack leader of the campaigns entered Kiev, where he was viewed as a liberator. He is actually where the idea of Ukraine as an independent Cossack state kind of begins. He set about establishing a system of government and state finances, created a local administration under a new governing elite of Cossack officers, and initiated relations with foreign states. Still prepared to recognize royal sovereignty, he entered into negotiations with the Polish, but discussions didn't go so hot since both sides wanted power over Ukraine and its people. <laughs> right? In 1654, at Pereyaslav, Pereyaslav, he made an agreement with Moscow that is extremely controversial. Is this where the historian fight comes in? Uh, this is very much where a historian fight comes in. And um, <laughs> just, again, spoiler alert, I would suggest it is a big part of where current fight comes in. Mm. Russian historians have emphasized Ukraine's acceptance of the Russian rule, but Ukrainian his oh my god, historiography has stressed Moscow's recognition of Ukraine's autonomy, including an elective hetmancy, which we said it before, but it is the head of the Cossack state, uh, self-government, and the right to conduct foreign relations. That was virtually tantamount to independence. Moscow now entered the war against Poland. No decisive breakthrough occurred, however, despite occasional joint victories and... Say it? Kmelnitsky. ...became increasingly disillusioned with the alliance. There were disputes over control of conquered territory in Belarus and conflicts over Russian interference in internal Ukrainian affairs. So this agreement with Moscow that is extremely controversial, it sounds kind of just like Kimelnitsky was like, we're going to need some help. Yeah. And Russia was like, we can give you that help, but at the price. Right. Our fingers were crossed when we made a deal. Yeah. And then, you know, Kimelnitsky is like, okay, look, we'll pay the price for now, but like... We are our own thing. And Russia's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It turns out I don't speak Ukrainian, so. <laughs> Kmelnitsky's successor, Hetman Ivan Vovsky. There's Vyofsky. so many whys. Right. Why is not sometimes a vowel <laughs> in this world? It is always a vowel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, Hetman here broke with Moscow and in 1658 concluded the new Treaty of Hadiak with Poland. But its terms, central, UK, um, 
sorry, by its terms, central Ukraine joined with Poland and Lithuania as an equal member of the Commonwealth. Polish people didn't love this since they had been struggling so long trying to control while simultaneously using the Cossacks. The Cossacks and the peasant masses didn't like it because of its conservative social caste and the Polish connection and a prov... Provocation. Provocation to Moscow. The Treaty of Hadiak was never implemented. Facing the mounting opposition, Vyofsky resigned and fled to Poland. <laughs> he did like a really bad job. Yeah, it seemed, I mean, he did a very good job of making something that pissed off everybody. Literally everybody. He was like, I have this treaty. Yeah. And no one is going to like it. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I think I'm just going to run over to Russia. Thanks. Mm -hmm. After Ivan... Ukraine began a rapid descent into a prolonged state of chaos that contemporaries call the ruin. <laughs> Great name. Yeah. Tensions increased between the Cossack officers who were undergoing a transformation into a hereditary landowning class and rank and file Cossacks and the peasantry who were the expected supply of labor. Hmm. From, uh, yeah. <laughs> Seems like... <laughs> We've we've kind of lost where we started here with the, the Cossack folk. Yeah, I think so, too. <laughs> From 1663, rival hetmans rose and fell in the competing Polish and Russian spheres of influence. And four years later, in 1667, by the truce of Andrusovo, Ukraine was partitioned along the Dnieper River. The west, or right bank, went to Poland, while Russia got the east, known as the left bank, together with Kiev, which was located west of the river, but... We all know how um, Soviets like to take cities in other places. Yeah. Uh, the arrangement was confirmed in 1686 by the Treaty of Eternal Peace between Poland and Russia. There's a country left out there. They did not feel eternal peace. No. No, they did not. Yeah, and that's where the story ends. And it's been peaceful for the next 400 years. Yeah. Fantastic. The partition of Ukraine caused a patriotic reaction. And then... We have roughly 100 years of Ukraine being split, then sewn together, then split, then Russia taking more land, then annexing it, and some very messer, messy northern wars mm -hmm. uh, coming here as well. So, 1708-209, we have Mazepa uprising, uh, attempting to free eastern to free the Eastern from Russian rule during the prolonged Great Northern War that put Russia against Poland and Sweden at the time. About 60 years later, we have Russia establishing a little Russia government as a transitional entity until the full annexation of the territory of their left bank in 1781. Uh, right before that, we have most of Western Ukraine being absorbed into the Russian Empire through the partitions of Poland. And then in 83, we have Russia taking over Southern Ukraine through the annexation of the Crimean Khanate. In the 19th century, or... <laughs> just like a lot of changing hands. Yeah, just a lot of, yeah, just a Northern lot of back and forth. Northern wars happening, Poland being like, we want it, Russia being like, we want it. Ukraine being like, can no one have it? Yeah, Ukraine and Cossacks being like, stop. Right. Uh, then in the 19th century or 1800s, Thank there you. was a national cultural reawakening that sees the development of Ukrainian literature, education, and historical research. Hads, sorry, Habsburg run Galicia. So I wanted to make a Canadians joke here. Oh, like the, the Habs. Yeah. Yeah. 
Is that funny? It's all right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Habsburg-run we'll Galicia, acquired during the partitions of Poland, became a center for Ukrainian political and cultural activity as Russia bans the use of Ukrainian language on its own territory. You hate to see it. Yeah, that's not great. Uh, it's like, oh, you guys are trying to a cultural reawakening here. Well, let's just put that back to sleep, shall we? I mean, the worst part is, is that it happens again. Mm -hmm. And again and again and again. Yeah. Russia signed the Treaty of Paris in 1856, accepting defeat in the Crimean War, which had decimated its military and ruined its economy. It agreed to dismantle its naval base. These were the terms demanded by Britain, France, and their allies who sought to eliminate Russia as a military threat in the Black Sea, which is where Crimea is. Yarr. The Black Sea. <laughs> Immediately following the overthrow of the Tsar in February of 1917, so we're working into more actual times. Um, also, yep. Ottoman Empire is around right now. That is correct. We were born in the same century that Tsars were, like, Tsars and Tsars were around. Tsars, yes. Tsars with a T. Yeah, I think Tsars came in the century after us. But Tsars yes. was in the 2000s. Yeah. That is true. <laughs> Capital S, A-R-S. Right? <laughs> um, anyway, 1917, February, Tsar, overthrown. Ukraine yes. set up a provisional government and proclaimed itself a republic within the structure of a federated Russia. So it's like, okay, if you guys are just going to be like, taking us in anyway can we at least be our own thing under you after vladimir lenin and the bolsheviks rose to power that fall ukraine like its fellow former russian property finland took one step further declaring its complete independence in january 1918 which i appreciate the can-do attitude i don't believe that's how it's ever worked aside from in canada right and even when even when canada did that we kind of asked for it first right they were just Please. like oh no we're good we're, we're just Ukraine now. It's all good. Don't worry about it. Yeah. No, but we had... No, 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 no. No, We're Ukraine now. All those treaties, all those wars. Right. Let's let's stop now. You guys, are the, the Treaty of Eternal Peace, we're the Treaty of U Eternal Ukraine. Ukraine. Huh? Get it? Eh? Right? Yeah. Anyway. But Ukraine's government had serious difficulty imposing its rule on the people in the face of Bolshevik opposition and counter-revolutionary activity within the country. Seeing Ukraine as an ideal and much-needed source of food for their hunger-plagued people. <laughs> what a verb. Right? No, adjective. Mm -hmm. What an adjective for people. Hunger-plagued people. Yeah. Germany and Austria brought in troops to preserve order, forcing the Russian troops occupying the country to leave under the terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and virtually annexing the region while supposedly recognizing Ukrainian independence, but they also just, like, marched in and were like, we need food. Yeah. The defeat of the Central Powers and the signing of the Armistice in November of 1918 forced Germany and Austria to withdraw from Ukraine at the same time with the fall of the austro Austro. Austro. Hungarian Empire, an independent West Ukrainian Republic, was proclaimed in the Galician city of Lviv. The two Ukrainian states proclaimed their union in early 1919, but independence was short-lived. Of course it was. Uh-huh. As they immediately found themselves in a three-way struggle against troops from both Pola... Pola... <laughs> Poland and Russia. The Ukrainian... That's <laughs> just them combined. <laughs> Polusia. Yeah. Uh, the Ukrainian government briefly allied themselves with Poland, but could not withstand the Soviet assault. In 1922, Ukraine became 
That's a weird rhyme. Mm-hmm. One of the original constituent republics of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, which we all know mm-hmm. is a union <laughs> of multiple countries that includes, but not entirely is, Russia. Right. Some we would say it is that. a union of Soviet socialist republics. We all know that. Mm-hmm. We, you don't need to explain it anymore. We no. get it. <laughs> In 1929, <laughs> as part of his plan to rapidly create a totally communi- uh, communist economy, Stalin had imposed... Damn, I was hoping I wouldn't get this. Collectivization. Thank you. Thank which you. replaced individually owned and operated farms with big state-run collectives. Ukraine's small, mostly substance farmers resisted giving up their land and livelihoods in response the soviet regime held down totally chill with it right they were like oh yeah no that checks out um but then after they went psych the (laughs) soviet regime held down the resistors and labeled them as kulaks peasants who in soviet ideology were considered enemies of the state Mm. soviet officials drove these peasants off their farms by force and stalin's secret police further made plans to deport 50,000 Ukrainian farm families to Siberia. Collectivization in Ukraine. Collectivization. Um, Also, I just want to say that sending farm families to Siberia, fuck off. Yes. Yeah, not cool. That's the worst place to go if you're a farmer. (laughs) (laughs) Fair point. Collectivization in Ukraine didn't go very well. That's like secret funny. Right. It's like under, it's slow burn funny. Yeah. Uh, By the fall of 1932, around the time that Stalin's wife, who reportedly objected to the collectivization policy, committed suicide, it became apparent that Ukraine's grain harvest was going to miss Soviet planners' target by 60%. There still might have been enough food for Ukrainian peasants to get by, but Stalin was like, fuck that, and ordered what little they had to be confiscated as punishment for not meeting quotas. It's the depression. Yes. What a wasteful fuck. Yeah. While wheat was being confiscated and completely wasted, Stalin already had arrested tens of thousands of Ukrainian teachers and intellectuals and removed Ukrainian language books from schools and libraries. The Soviet leader used the grain shortfall as an excuse for even more intense anti-Ukrainian repression. The 1932 decree targeted Ukrainian saboteurs, ordered local officials to stop using the Ukrainian language in their correspondence, and cracked down on Ukrainian cultural policies that had been developed in the 1920s. When Stalin's crop collectors went out into the countryside, according to a 1988 U.S. Congressional Commission report, so this isn't just hearsay, this has been, like, reported, they used long wooden poles with metal points to poke the dirt floors of peasants' homes and probe the ground around them in case they buried any stores of grain, or buried any stores of grain, as it's actually pronounced, to avoid (laughs) detection. Two boys who were caught hiding fish and frogs they'd caught, for example, were taken to the village Soviet where they were beaten and dragged into a field with their hands tied and their mouths and nose gagged where they were left to suffocate. The Ukrainian famine, known as Holodomor, a combination of the Ukrainian words for starvation and to inflict death, by one estimate claimed the lives of 3.9 million people, about 13% of the population. Mm -hmm. Um, In April of 2008, 
8, Russia's lower house of parliament passed a resolution stating that there is no historical proof that the famine was organized along ethnic lines, meaning that it didn't qualify as genocide. Which again, if you're the one doing the genociding, you can't decide if it's a genocide or not. Yeah, you don't get to decide that. Right. To that point, at least 16 countries have recognized Holodomor, and most recently the U.S. Senate, in a 2018 resolution, affirmed the findings of the 1988 commission that Stalin had committed genocide. Mm -hmm. In 1939, Western Ukraine is annexed by the Soviet Union under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet Pact. A wonderful pact that we probably talked about in the very first episode of this podcast. Yes. In 41, Ukraine suffers a terrible wartime devastation as Nazis occupy the country until 1944. I feel like Ukraine doesn't come up a lot in World War II history, much mm -hmm. like India right. doesn't. But they're fighting it from both sides. Yes. And it did not go well. Consistently. Yeah. More than 5 million Ukrainians die fighting Nazi Germany. Most of Ukraine's 1.5 million Jewish population is killed by the Nazis. In 1944, Stalin deports 200,000 Crimean Tatars to Siberia and Central Asia following false accusations of collaboration with Nazi Germany and calling the ethnic Muslims traitors to the USSR and bringing in ethnic Russians to replenish the workforce workforce yeah what a horrible sentence yes in a surprise move in 1954 then soviet leader nikita khrushchev transfers the crimean peninsula to ukraine the move was hailed as a quote noble act on behalf of the russian people but for all the talk about unity and cooperation recent documents suggest khrushchev's move was motivated more by political calculation than goodwill it was designed to appease ukrainian leadership and solidify his position in the power struggle that emerged after Stalin's death in 1953. An armed resistance to Soviet rule ends with the capture of the last commander of the Ukrainian insurgent army. In 1991, as we have discussed before, things aren't super duper in the USSR, and Ukraine once again declares independence following an attempted coup in Moscow. About 250,000 Crimean Tatars and their descendants returned to Crimea following the collapse of the Soviet Union. In 1994, presidential elections are held and Leonid Kuchma beats Leonid Kravchuk. I really hope that it wasn't just first name, last initial on that ballot. <laughs> uh, he conducts policy of balancing overtures to the West and alliance with Russia. In 1996, a new democratic constitution adopted, and Hiraviana currency is introduced. You practiced that one. I didn't. Wow. Well, you nailed that. Thank you. Another... another uh, Ukrainian word where Y is not sometimes a vowel. Yeah, definitely a vowel. Always a vowel. Yes. Uh, in May of 2002, the government announces decisions to launch for a formal bid to join NATO. Uh, and in 2004, opposition leader Viktor... 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 <laughs> Yushchenko launches mass protest campaign over rigged election that gave victory to a pro-Russian candidate and the Supreme Court later annuls the poll results. So in December of 2005, Viktor, Viktor Yushchenko becomes the president after winning the election rerun. Relations with Russia sour, leading to frequent disputes over gas supplies and pipeline transit fees. In July of 2006, the Socialist Party abandons the Orange Revolution allies to form a coalition with uh, Viktor Yanukovych's 
Party of Regions and the Communists. In October of 2008, the global financial crisis leads to a decline in demand for steel, causing the price for one of the country's main exports to collapse. The value of Ukraine currency falls sharply and investors pull out. In 2013, uh, in early 2010, Victor is declared winner of a second round of the presidential election. And in June of that same year, Parliament votes to abandon the NATO membership aspirations. So hmm. took eight years to just be like, no, we're not going to do it. Yeah. In 2013, tens of thousands of protesters take to the streets to protest at the government's sudden decision to abandon plans to sign an association agreement with the eu blaming russian pressure interesting and so in 2014 in february russia was like oh you want to see pressure yeah approximately Secur four months later right security forces kill at least 77 protesters in kiev president yanukovych flees to russia opposition takes over then in march of 2014 you probably know where this one's going uh -huh. russia seized crimea from ukraine in an illegal move that violated the territorial integrity of the former soviet republic and sparked a war that has displaced nearly two million people and destroyed the country's infrastructure russian president vladimir putin justifies the aggression by asserting that crimea is mostly comprised of ethnic russians after the fall of the soviet union a 1997 treaty with ukraine allowed Russia to keep its Black Sea fleet in Sevastopol uh, under a lease that had been extended until 2042. Basically, he was like, well, there's a lot of Russian people that live there, so it, it's Russia now. No. No, that's yeah. not how it works. Nope. Um, September of 2014, NATO confirms Russian troops and heavy military equipment entering eastern Ukraine. In October, Parliamentary elections produce convincing majority for pro-Western parties in Ukraine. Three years later, in July of 2017, Ukraine's association agreement with the European Union is ratified by all signatories and comes into force on September 1st. Uh, 2018, Russian President Putin officially opens a bridge linking southern Russia to Crimea, an action Ukraine calls illegal. In 2019, uh, April to July, television comedian Volodymyr. Nice. Spelt the good way, not Vladimir. Yeah, Volodymyr. Volodymyr Zelensky wins presidential election runoff in a landslide victory over incumbent Petro Poroshenko. He takes office in May and his servant of the People Party wins early par... I always have trouble with this one. I want to say parliamentary. Nope, that's on it. I know, but there's so many vowels. <laughs> yeah, none of them are I want to see why. them all. <laughs> Parliamentary elections in July. Uh, in August of 2019, Parliament appoints President Zelensky's aide, Alexei Honcharuk, the Prime Minister. In September of that same year, Russia and Ukraine swap prisoners captured in the wake of Moscow's seizure of Crimea and intervention in the Donbass. In October of 2019, Ukraine becomes kind of the subject of U.S. impeachment allegations of President Donald Trump attempting to put pressure on the country over investigating possible Democratic presidential rival Joe Biden. In March of 2020, President Zelensky appoints former businessman Denis Shmihal as the prime minister with a mandate to stimulate industrial revival and improve tax receipts. And then we are here today. With 
this like tumultuous conflict that is Russia and the Ukraine maybe making a little more sense now. Like I had no idea that it has switched hands so many times um, that there has just been these this group of originally Cossacks that are Ukrainians now. Poland was involved in this. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's been literal decades of Ukraine trying to shake Russia and interfering political parties or to join NATO or to join the EU and just being snubbed. Yeah. Like, they're just trying to, to change their image here. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like they're in such a they're in such a great spot when it comes to like where the the water ends up, you know? <laughs> like it's just they they just happen to geographically be in an awesome spot, but also in an awful spot because they're right beside Russia who wants the spot that they're in. And yeah. it's just like they're they're just they they really are just like minding their own business there. And Russia's like, "Well, d- fuck you then." Yeah. Yeah, totally. They have the the river that kind of splits the country in half. They have access to the Black Sea. Yeah, like, because so much, as we're finding out, so much of the supply chain is still water-based. Um, yeah. it, it does seem like a, a very important spot. And back in the, the days where, like, water was hugely important, it, it was a, a massive kind of territorial advantage. And it just, like, they, they've very rarely had just any kind of sustained just being them. Mm-hmm. And yet there's still, as we are seeing, still such um, patriotism or whatever the word may be yeah. for like just such a pride in what heritage they've been allowed to have mm-hmm. that you, you are seeing like that their politicians aren't running away from, say, a snowstorm in Texas in December, um, <laughs> that they are staying there and fighting and are in the troops and are and, sorry, in the front lines with the troops and in army fatigues like it's it's crazy to see again how passionate these Mm -hmm. people are about just being themselves when they've barely been allowed to be themselves since the damn vikings yeah and i feel like you know we can draw some parallels here to what has happened to cossacks and uh ukrainians to what you know canada did to indigenous people like take away their language take away their stories take away their history make them like you and then you know they're gonna bend to your rule um we saw the same thing happen here and it it happened in ukraine as well and uh just like indigenous peoples of canada it's like no (laughs) Uh, we are different i am different Mm -hmm. and and my differences are good yeah and i'm gonna stick up for them uh but it is incredibly sad what's happening to the ukraine right now and this is kind of another one of those stories that, like, it's it's not at its end, but it has a lesson of, you know, if you look away too long, someone might move in. Yeah. Uh, and Ukraine seems to have been pointing out that Russia and Putin uh, are shady. <laughs> um, but without world support, like, without the NATO agreement, without being part of the EU or or things like that, like, what, what are they supposed to do? Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a very difficult spot, which has led us to where we are at uh, present day. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Not the most uplifting note to end on. No. <laughs> but, I mean, there's a country in, a, in, you know, a literal war and, you know, there's a couple happening. Like, we saw the bombing of the Gaza Strip um, in 2021. And I think that there still is a bunch of um, Palestinians being moved out of the, the West Bank. Um by uh israelis and you know i think uh i read something the other day that uh saudi arabia got bombed Mm. so 
you know, there there is many wars happening and um, this one is just, I guess, the most uh, recent to add on to that tally, but it's fucking sad. Yeah, it really is. And it was just, it was so out of nowhere. And I'm not saying that any anyone else did anything wrong to deserve what you just no, mentioned. No, 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 no. absolutely um, not. But it's like, Ukraine literally did nothing. And Putin's like, ah, fuck you anyway. Yeah, they're just geographically yeah, located they just... a little too close to the fire. Yeah. And, you know, you can't... What are they going to chisel Ukraine off? Right. They can't help it. Yeah. So hopefully the, this story has a happy ending, but already for, for so many, it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. But we hope you learned something. I know I certainly did. Yeah, I didn't know any of that. No. <laughs> and it's just... it's Like I said, it's crazy how it's just like... It's always just felt up for grabs. Yeah. When also, it never should have been. No. I also didn't know that I liked um, having the letter Y used in right. words so much. Or O. Or O. Yeah. Vladimir. Vladimir. Oh, it feels good. Right? So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you have any suggestions for other episodes for us to do, we would love to hear them. You can email us suggestions at wehadnoideapodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram at wehadnoideapodcast. Uh, and even if you just want to, you know, send us a note, send us a little chat. It right. It doesn't have to be a suggestion. You can just say hi. Don't be shy. <laughs> <laughs> did you hear me wink with my voice? Yes. I yes, I did. I tried to. Yeah. I tried really hard. <laughs> well, thank you for listening and we will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Vladimir. Vladimir. Oh, shit. I'm pressing the wrong button.